We owe our men and women in uniform a huge debt. Not only do they sacrifice their lives for the freedoms we enjoy, they also display incredible statesmanship in the line of duty. Army National Guardsman Chez Chezek enjoyed his interactions with Kurdish people during his deployment to Kirkuk, Iraq. You know, through our interpreters, through different interactions with the locals, uh, we did a lot of foot patrols, for example. We were able to kind of get to know some of the local culture. During her deployments to Kosovo and South Korea, Army 2nd Lieutenant Leslie Riley experienced those countries from a bird's eye vantage point. There was a lot of um, Macedonian locals that had jobs on the base. Uh, and I can remember one in particular that would like bring food or always just had a smile on his face and wanted to tell us about the culture. Join us for our conversations with two of America's finest as we talk to them about the impact their military service has had on their view of the world on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Chess Chezak is an Army National Guardsman turned travel journalist. In 2005, Chez was deployed to Kirkuk, Iraq, as part of a combat team comprised of individuals with valuable life experiences. Chez says that it was their maturity and life experiences that allowed his team to accomplish their task while displaying empathy and humanity. Chez, what branch of the military did you serve in, and where were you stationed overseas? I was with uh, the Army National Guard, um, a unit out of Idaho, the 116th Brigade Combat Team. And and we deployed in 2005, for most of 2005, uh, first in an area called Bakuba, which was uh, about 40 minutes outside of Baghdad. And then we spent uh, we spent about uh, two months or so there. And then we went, uh, for the rest of our deployment, we were up in Kirkuk uh, in a northern, more northern part of Iraq, uh, which if there were a Kurdistan, Kirkuk might very well be its capital. Had you done much uh, traveling overseas before your deployment? Just a bit. Uh, my father was in the army as well. Although I missed most of that travel, uh, I was the, the third child and so missed a lot of the, the um, being stationed in Germany and different parts of the U.S. and things like that. Uh, but I'd done a little bit of international travel uh, just with relatives and things like that. Okay, so what, what was your view, uh, your overall view of the world at that time and specifically in the countries you were stationed before um, you actually started uh, a lot of international traveling? Well, I think I'd always had uh, something of a global perspective. I'd always been really intrigued by things like history and international politics. And one of my degrees, uh, or one of my majors, I should say, in college was international politics. I had done a semester in Washington, D.C. during college that focused on international politics as well. So I, I certainly had kind of the, the macro uh, international view of, of uh, the world. But, you know, I didn't have that kind of personal one-on-one, been there, done that sort of concept quite yet. Given this, we asked Chez what life was like when he deployed overseas. Well, we were a combat arms unit, so we were we were out in the streets. We were uh, rolling out every day, um, you know, patrolling uh, nights as well. We had broken things down into basically a nine-day week where we had three days of uh, standard patrols during the day, uh, day or night. Uh, We had three days of QRF or quick reaction force where we're standing by ready to go in case something happens, plus patrols at night. Um, And then we we were on a very small base uh, in Kirkuk, so we actually pulled our own security. We did our own guard duty, so we had three days of that as well. We recognize that Chez wasn't based in a tourism destination, but we asked him if there were any cultural immersive opportunities. 
Yes and no. I mean, a, a lot of our time was spent uh, cruising around in up-armored Humvees looking at uh, this new world through bulletproof glass. Um, but, you know, we certainly had our opportunities. You know, had I been uh, an officer, one of our senior NCOs, non-commissioned officers, I would have been engaging with the locals, at least the Iraqi army and police uh, contacts there a lot more often. But uh, as, as just a Joe, so to speak, I was a machine gunner. Uh, I was often just kind of on the periphery. But we did have the opportunity to engage with uh, different peoples along the way, families and things. We were spending a year, almost a year, in the country. Um, but it was a little bit challenging because we're most often, you know, in armored Humvees behind bulletproof glass, kind of watching this new world uh, roll by. But, you know, through our interpreters, through different interactions with the locals, uh, we did a lot of foot patrols, for example. We were able to kind of get to know some of the local culture just through a very different prism <laughs> than mm -hmm. you might say, you know, as a typical tourist. So how, how was your view of the world then shaped when you were there doing this high-level uh, bit of security work? Um, you know, it was certainly challenging. Again, it wasn't like a, a tourist where I could sit back, relax, and just kind of let the destination story sort of unfold or anything like that. It was, you know, there's a primary mission, which was, you know, making sure that we and the city were safe and secure. Um, so that always came first. But, you know, you couldn't help but notice uh, just just kind of the fantastic uh, antiquities and, and, and different uh just forts and, and, and uh, you know, all this just ancient culture that's all around you. Uh, and I, I found it fascinating. Um, it, was, it was also really tough as somebody who loves to travel. You know, we would just drive by these amazing, uh, like I said, forts and different things, museums. And I just, uh, you know, I'd, I'd sort of jokingly but not really plead with the leadership, be like, hey, we should stop and go check that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure for obvious reasons. Yeah. But so that brings me to, you know, my next question is, I find it very fascinating that you made the jump from the military service to travel journalism that you're doing today. How did that come about? Well, I mean, writing's always been at my core. I've, I've been writing uh, since I moved to fourth grade when I had a teacher who really took an interest in my writing. I had written a, an essay and I used the word flat instead of apartment. And she noticed that I'd used the, the British term. And she said, you know, how'd you know this? And I said, well, I just read. And, and so she really encouraged me to write and I've, I've really been writing ever since. So even deployed, I immediately pitched kind of our hometown paper, the Idaho Statesman, on the idea of doing a weekly column called Letters from Iraq. They loved it. They, they, they approved it like within two or three days then I had to get the army to approve it. Now that took probably about two or three months, but uh, once it got approved, I, I was writing over there, predominantly for the Idaho Statesman. Um, and this was just on my own, you know, I wasn't getting paid for it or anything. It's just something I wanted to do because I wanted to tell our story for sure. Mm -hmm. And then eventually those stories eventually started getting picked up in different military publications. Uh, National Guard magazines and things like that. Chair shared an interesting insight into how he believes the National Guardsmen were perceived in Iraq. Well, it was, it was really a learning moment. I mean, I, my, my father was in the military. I grew up pretty much on an army base. You know, my, my high school jobs were at the, the, the Fort Evans Commissary. This is a base, uh, now defunct base in Massachusetts, but I was bagging groceries in the commissary and things like that. I, I grew up around the army. Um, and it was fascinating for me to deploy with a National Guard unit 
to see the difference between active duty and National Guard. Now, National Guard in general is a, is a quite a bit older force than your active duty army, as you might figure. Uh, active duty army has a lot of, you know, kids straight out of high school, 18, 19 year olds and things like that. It was really fascinating for me because as a National Guard unit, um, in my own personal opinion, and nothing against uh, active duty army, of course, but um, I just thought we were a little bit better suited for that mission because we had, uh, we, were, we were an older force. We had a lot more life experiences. We were able to bring a diverse skill set to the table because, uh, you know, we had people with just a lot of life experience. Be that something as simple as somebody just knowing how to weld, much less having, you know, not one medic, but three or three and a half because one of our guys was a physician's assistant. Another guy was an EMT. You know, these are their full-time jobs. We had guys who were uh, police officers, uh, correctional officers. Uh, we had one guy who was an IT guy who would help people out with their laptops when they're on the fritz. So we brought this really diverse skill set to the table, not to mention the fact that, um, you know, a lot more of our guys had families. Uh, so they could, you know, maybe empathize uh, with, the, with the locals a little bit more when we're, we are going through somebody's house on a raid. Uh, we're stepping over, literally stepping over sleeping kids and things like that, looking for weapons or just checking uh, maybe on a report that we got on a high value target or something like that. Um, so I think that we went into it with a lot more respect and reverence for the local people. Um, and because of that, we got a lot of things done. You know, we really built a rapport, the local Iraqi police and, and army officials that we needed to work with. Uh, we, while we were there, we got a, a huge amount, the, the unit as a whole got a huge amount of construction projects done. Um, and in general, things were pretty quiet. Um, we were replaced by a much more aggressive unit, an active duty unit. Um, and the minute that those guys came in and started trying to push people around, well, what started happening? All the IEDs, the roadsides, bombs, they started going off. Things started getting a lot more dangerous in that city. Uh, once those guys came in because, because their natural disposition was, we're going to come in, we're going to take charge of the situation. No one's going to push us around. Well, they started offending people is what it came down to. And so local people got frustrated and, and a little bit um, uh, pissed off, if you will. And things just started getting much worse, much more quickly. Wow. So now that you are traveling the world as a, uh, and, and looking at the world through uh, travel journalism, eyes or travel journalist eyes do you see it any differently today than you did back when you were uh, in uh, Iraq um, I'm chuckling because uh, uh, I never stopped pulling security <laughs> 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 but my first um, my first real trip when I started working in travel was in Brazil and at first we were in a major city at a, at a big trade show and that was no big deal but pretty soon we got uh, into the, the country, into what they call the, uh, the sort of the Diamond Highlands, uh, I believe. And uh, there's a moment where we're in some small trucks out in the middle of nowhere and pulled into a small village. And people were wondering why I was standing off by myself. And so was I when I realized that I was literally pulling security, just because I was having something of a flashback, being in the back of a small truck, bouncing around in kind of a, not necessarily a third world country, but a place very different than what I was used to, and then pulling up to a village and my first thought was immediately don't bunch up with everybody else, get away from everybody so that you're not making a solid target. And yeah, I had my back to my party and I was looking out scanning because <laughs> I was wow. by habit, I was pulling security. Um, that being said though, uh, you know, one of the things I'd love to do uh, would be to get back to Kurdistan. Uh, you know, the Kurds were such 
a wonderful people, you know, much easier for us to work with in that environment. Now, uh, Kirkuk in particular was about a third uh, Arabic who, for the most part, hated us. Uh, a third Kurds who loved us because of, you know, the things that we had done, uh, removing Saddam Hussein from power and whatnot. Um, and then I think, if I remember correctly, the rest of the city, or about a third of it was a Syrian who, who really was kind of indifferent. And then you had a smattering of, you know, 10% of everything else, you know, some Christians and things like that. Um, and so the Kurds were always excited to work with us, always very welcoming. Uh, we had this fantastic evening uh, where the interim prime minister was appointed, and it was a Kurd. And so immediately they started celebrating. And as they celebrate in that part of the world, that means firing AK-47s off into the air. <laughs> and at first I was just like, man, let the people celebrate. Let's hunker down. But our, our company commander said, we got to get out there and, you know, make sure that nothing bad is happening, uh, maybe quell some of this exuberant celebration. And I, I was really frustrated at first. I'm like, man, let these people celebrate. They're so excited. But it's fantastic to get out there because uh, I, I almost felt like a soldier and, 44 helping liberate Paris or something. I mean, crowds, when we're in the Kurdish neighborhoods and only in the Kurdish neighborhoods, but throngs of people out partying in the streets, they'd press around our vehicles and just kind of like giving us high fives and stuff. If we dismounted and we're walking around, they were coming up, you know, uh, even women who aren't really supposed to approach us in, in that culture, they were coming up, shaking our hands. I think one woman kind of gave me a, a peck on the cheek and everything. They were just exuberant and out, you know, drinking, trying, trying to give us a bottle of booze, which of course we couldn't have. Um, and it was just a fantastic to see the, these people who had been so repressed for so long kind of having their day. <laughs> and it was, mm. it was fantastic. I, actually, right above, uh, not joking, right above my desk, I've got a Kurdish flag that a vendor just pressed into my hand. He said, Mr. Mr., this is for you. This is for you. This is free. I just want you to have this to let you know that you're, you know, thank you for being a part of this and thank you and your country for helping us. Um, and, and what a great day for Kurdistan. And so I've always cherished that flag. And yeah, I've got a, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of flying in the breeze here in my office uh, right next to me. We often hear from people who are afraid to travel because they've been led to believe that the world isn't safe. So we were curious to hear what stories Chez is telling about the world as a travel journalist following his military career. Well, I always love the undiscovered places, maybe sometimes even the forgotten places. I mean, those, those are just always so intriguing to me. It is, you know, a lot of your top destinations, of course, they're fantastic. That's why they're top destinations. New York City's amazing. Paris is fantastic. London, uh, you know, but so many people go there or, you know, they only go there. Um, the United Kingdom has, you know, all sorts of amazing opportunities to go and explore, be it Scotland or Wales, you know, all these fantastic islands and stuff, to only go to London um, and then come back and say, oh, I've been to Britain. It's like, well, no, you've been to London. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just love discovering those new places that people don't even know about. Or like, um, maybe it's got a bad rap. Colombia is a great example. Um, you know, for so long, uh, you had these horrible drug cartels running things in Colombia, uh, but that was a long time ago. And yet, and so they're hungry for tourism, they're hungry for visitors, they love Americans. Um, but yet, your average American still considers uh, Colombia a very dangerous place, because maybe as they were growing up, and you know, certainly for a significant period of time, they only heard bad things about it. Um, well, you know, it's time to start to get people back there to start to have them tell their own stories and start to share that with their friends and their circles and their social media. And, uh, and those are the stories that I love, just the really unexpected ones. Is there, throughout all of your travels, is there a very memorable moment that has just stuck with you through the years? 
so many. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a fave? <laughs> you know, there's so many great ones. I'm a huge fan now of Namibia. I had an opportunity to go there four or five times uh, several years ago. I really fell in love with that country. Norway, so stunning. You know, Alaska. Oh, man, I could move to Alaska in a heartbeat. I love my native New England. I've, I've always sort of poo-pooed Florida. Now I'm starting to discover some of the other fantastic places there the Gulf Coast, Sarasota, you know, some of the adventures, the adventure tours in Midtown, Florida. They got out to drive through Cubits National Park. Amazing. Thanks, Chess, for your service, and we'll see you on the road somewhere. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world one story at a time. We invite you to travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift. Leslie Riley graduated from the West Point Military Academy. She was a second lieutenant and flew CH-47D Chinook helicopters. During her tours to Kosovo and South Korea, Leslie said she saw those countries from a different vantage point as she flew over the countryside. Leslie, thank you for your service. Share a little of your backstory. Um, I grew up in a really small town that was actually a Navy town. Uh, it was a place called China Lake. It's in the middle of the Mojave Desert in California. And because my dad was a civilian employee on the Navy base, when we were vacationing in the East Coast one summer, uh, he really wanted to see the Naval Academy. And I did what any good teenager does. I crossed my arms. I pouted. I said that was stupid and I didn't want to do it. Uh, but when we rolled up to the academy and he gave me the choice of going on the tour or sitting in the 100-degree hot car, I chose to go on the tour. And when I did, um, the midshipmen were already starting their summer training. The plebes were there. And I looked at my mom and I said, there's girls in there. And she nodded. And, you know, this was like 1991. So women had been at the academy for over a decade. And I said, could I do that? And she said, yeah, sure. You want, like. I don't think she gave it a lot of thought because I wasn't super athletic. I wasn't really into the military. Like none of it really seemed to fit. But mm -hmm. from that day forward, I was a dog with a bone and I went on to get my uh, appointment and went to a West Point. I ended up choosing the military academy and from there got commissioned as a second lieutenant and went to flight school where I learned to fly Chinooks and was stationed in a bunch of cool places. Um, most of them started with K. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I went to Kosovo. I was in Korea. Um, and then I got out after seven years of active duty. I know that the travel bug bit you. Um, and so I'm curious, did it bite you before or after your tours to Kosovo in South Korea? I think it bit me before. My parents um, saved up money and sent me on a this awesome trip where I got to play volleyball with other high school girls when I was in high school. So that was my first real like international travel that I remember being so exciting. But certainly my time in the military took me to some places that I would have never gotten to see otherwise. I think the highlight for me was um, when I was deployed to Kosovo, I got to go on a little R&R trip. So it was just three, three nights, I think, in Bulgaria. And I don't even think I'd ever heard of Bulgaria or thought of Bulgaria, but it was just amazing to see some of the things there, like Olympic training facilities and just trying different foods. And that one definitely got me hooked for sure. You flew Chinook helicopters overseas. What was that like? I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the Chinooks are, I, I chose that aircraft because 
to me, of all the aircraft that the Army offers you to fly if you're going to fly helicopters, it had a real team mentality. You always have two pilots. You always have two crew members. So there was never any less than four of us going up in the air to do a mission. And so I loved the team aspect of it. And because we always had a team, it was fun when we were flying, especially on my deployment to Kosovo. I felt like we got to see some beautiful countryside. Um, we got to do some really cool missions going into the mountains and we got to go into like deserty areas and kick up a lot of dirt. So we got to do a little bit of everything. And there's always one person who has free hands to take pictures. We got to document it pretty well too. <laughs> now, were you unique in being a female helicopter pilot or did you have other um, uh, colleagues who, who also uh, trained as well? Other, other, other female cadets perhaps? Yeah, there was, I want to say in my graduating class at West Point, there was like eight or nine women that went aviation. So I started flight school with that cohort. And, you know, we might have been in different classes separated out by a month or so. Um, but there was always other women around. And every unit that I was in, there was at least a couple of other women. So I never felt unique until I got out into the civilian world. And then it's like when people find out I flew helicopters, they want to know all about it. They're like, what was it like being a woman? And it it never occurred to me that that was unique. Um, but looking back, we were definitely outnumbered, but I was never alone. During your time uh, abroad in, uh, in deployment, did you ever have opportunities to interact with locals? And if so, what was that like for you? Yeah, one of my favorite memories actually was during my deployment to Kosovo. And because the Chinook is such a large aircraft, we actually didn't stay in Kosovo with the rest of the group that was deployed. We were on a separate airfield in Macedonia. So we would fly up to Kosovo and deliver things. And, you know, our, our operating base was out of Macedonia. And we got to interact with the air traffic controllers there, obviously, from the aircraft. Sometimes we would we'd get to see them on the ground. Um, but my favorite memory was I was the only female pilot on that deployment. So there was eight men and myself. And I was flying with one of them, Jeff Huber, and we were coming back into the airfield. And normally the guys made the radio calls. But for some reason that day, he's like, why don't you make the radio call? So I clicked the mic to make the radio call. And he's, you know, I said, Skopje Tower, Varsity 36, request permission to land. Runway 18, you know, and I didn't hear anything back. It was just crickets. And so Jeff looks at me and he's like, did you transmit? Because if you click once, that's just an internal transmission to the aircraft. You have to click twice, like pull it back a little farther to make sure that you transmit it to the tower. So I was like, I thought I did, but let me try it again. So I, this time I made sure to click all the way back. Skopje Tower, Varsity 36, request permission to land, runway 18. And again, it's silence. And Jeff's like, I definitely heard it that time. You definitely transmitted. I don't know what's going on. Let me give it a try. So he's about to grab the mic and pull it back. And all of a sudden, these frantic voices come on and they say, okay, lady, you may land runway 18. And <laughs> we just started laughing because they had never had a woman make a radio call to um, do a landing on the runway before. So that was one of the funniest interactions I ever had while we were in Macedonia. Very endearing. Um, they were trying to get it right, but I, I felt a little bit like Jerry Lewis was calling me and, okay, lady, you can land. <laughs> did you have a lot of interactions with civilians? We didn't get a lot of that when I was in Kosovo. Much more of that in Korea, which I can talk about. But I will say that there was a lot of um, Macedonian locals that had jobs on the base. Uh, and I can remember one in particular that would like bring 
food or always just had a smile on his face and wanted to tell us about the culture and, and really get to know our culture. And so that was a really rewarding experience to have a local kind of in the base with us, letting us know a little bit about their culture. Leslie, you spoke about some of the travel you did uh, growing up, particularly playing volleyball. I'm curious what your worldview was like uh, before you got deployed and uh, specifically some of the places that you were deployed to. Uh, I would say my worldview is kind of the, I kind of viewed the world as my home. Like every place I ever went felt interesting. Um, I, I love seeing new stuff. I always felt I always felt welcome. Like I never, I never went anywhere that I didn't feel welcome. Um, and so I think that when I was deploying to places, I, I tried to bring that same sense to the people we were deploying to like, Hey, I know we're here and this might be awkward or I don't know what your thoughts on Americans are, but I, I want to build bridges. I don't want to, you know, put distance between us. Like it's one world. We're all kind of in this together. Did that view shift after you left the military? No, I think that's pretty much still, I actually feel like the military just strengthened it because I got to see so many different places, um, particularly in Korea. I did have a lot more interaction with locals in Korea because I actually got to live off the base. So I lived in um, a three-story unit and I had the middle story, that top story was rented to another um, military member, but the bottom story was owned by a Korean woman and her husband. And uh, she would like come into my apartment and leave me little treats. And she, one time she came in, like mopped my floors while I was gone. And she was just such a nice person. And um, it was just fun to have those interactions. So I feel like every place I went in the military just gave me one more worldview, one more perspective and really made me appreciate what a fantastic world we live in. Has your military service changed the way you travel today? Such an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it as distinct, like did my military service have an impact on how I travel? I definitely, I mean, I definitely, you know, the military is very big on safety first. So I always, I think from my time in the military, do a little bit of research before I'm going like, Hey, are there any warnings? Does the state department have anything to say about the place that I want to travel? Um, being aware of those things, I think just kind of puts your mind at ease. Like, yes, this is safe or Hey, this isn't necessarily a place the state department recommends. So I'm going to be extra cautious on my own. So it just gave me uh, new things to look at. I think before I travel, we know that you've spent time in Brazil. It's one of our favorite countries. What was your experience like? I have had many experiences in Brazil. It started in college. I don't know if you know this, but I was a Portuguese major when I went to West Point. Mm -hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of people pick majors based on something really probably important or smart. I picked Portuguese because it came with a free trip to Brazil. Basically my senior <laughs> year, I got to spend three weeks in Brazil and the army paid for it. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your time with us today. Without a doubt, these men and women in uniform are our true heroes, and I think we often take for granted how much they actually do serve us and this country. Not only do they put their lives 
in the line of fire, but they also show a different face of America that many people around the world may misperceive. As we hear the stories from the women and men who defend this country, that we also see the other side of their humanity. They're not just warriors, but they're really ambassadors for this country. Indeed, and they see the human in the human beings that they interact with, even when they're in hot countries like Iraq and Kosovo, and and they really are our heroes. And as Mary Roach said, heroism doesn't always happen in a burst of glory. Sometimes small triumphs in large hearts change the course of history. We want to thank Chez and Leslie and all of the other men and women in uh, uniform for their heroism. And thank you, our audience, for allowing us into your home. We hope that you are inspired to share these stories with your family and friends and give them the opportunity to explore the world with us. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and it is an honor and a privilege to connect you to the world, one story at a time, on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.